David Mamet sat down for a one-on-one interview in December of 1992. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theater Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Thank you all for having me uh, uh, here today. I, there, was a lot of, there were a lot of questions submitted in writing, and I found that they, were, they reminded me of something, uh, a book that I'd read, the, the kind of questions that I, I got and the book was The Boys from Brazil. Anybody ever read The Boys from Brazil? <laughs> By Ira Levin, terrific writer, but the plot, yeah. uh, in distinction to most of his things, is, is a, little bit, a little bit, I think, forgive me for speaking thus about another writer, it's a little bit weak in that his idea of this plot is that the, that the, the Germans want to bring back Nazism. That's not the weak part, unfortunately. The weak part is that the way that they elect to do it is by taking some boys and putting them in Brazil and by trying to, re- to recapitulate both in, in their genetics and in their upbringing the genetics and the upbringing of Adolf Hitler in a, therefore creating a new Fuhrer which the German people would follow as if they had to look that hard <laughs> and so they say well if, if, uh, if Hitler's father was an out of work shoemaker let's take the sperm of an out of work shoemaker and if Hitler's uh, uh, mother was the son of a, a, a Bavarian milkmaid and an Austrian, etc. Let's take those two people, take their sperm, and then if Hitler's, Hitler was brought up in a farm setting for eight years, let's bring up the kid in a farm setting for eight years. As if doing these things were going to bring about the uh, qualities in this new boy, that, as I said, that would create a new Hitler. And those questions which I received were seemed to me uh, reminiscent of that. They were... Um, they embodied to me a legitimate curiosity but a false assumption about the craft of writing or the accident of becoming a professional writer. Uh, That false assumption being that there are things which one can put in at the beginning in order to get the result at the end. Where should I write? What sort of shoes should I wear? Where should I go to school? I mean, these are all, all of us are, all of us are curious and all of us are given to gossip. And so I say the, the curiosity is legitimate. But it's a false assumption that if one does these things, A, one is going to end up at the desired result, B, the desired result being either to write a good play or to make a lot of money or to be be the envy of all our friends. I don't think that there is any correlation between the things that you could do at A and the result that you get at B. Another example of this this, uh, false method of reasoning, I think, is the Oxfordians, I think that's what they're called, who say that Shakespeare's plays weren't written by Shakespeare but by another guy of the same name as the old joke has it, or by the, the Earl of Oxford. Because Shakespeare couldn't have wrote those plays because he was ignorant. He didn't, uh, he didn't go to, he didn't go to the, the right colleges and he didn't know the right folks and he didn't wear the right tie. Only the Earl of Oxford had a sufficient uh, exposure to the erudition of his time to enable him to write Shakespeare's play. Well, that's the same false assumption. Um, if it were possible, as a lot of institutions of higher learning tell us, to cram in A, liberal arts education, and get B, a well-turned-out, successful, good writer, uh, it would have worked by now. It seems... <laughs> it seems to be a good idea, but it just don't work. The, the error that I see in the thinking of the Oxfordians, if that is in effect what they're called, is that it's not a polite profession, and neither is it a science. Either uh, is it a genetic um, nor a mechanical science. It's a craft which has, down through the ages, been practiced in the main by whores like me, people who didn't know how to do anything else and were rumbling about in the dark trying to express themselves and at some point either got good at it or um, got famous at it or perhaps got both and so persevered that the purpose of literature, um, and here's another fallacy, I think, is not to do good. That's not the purpose of literature. 
The purpose of literature is to delight us. And that's why the writer writes it, because it delights him or her to express it or delights him or her to be rid of it. And the reason that it's successful is that that in some way delights the audience, that it appeals either to their um, self-esteem or to their prejudices or creates in them a new happy understanding of the world. That's all there is to it. There isn't any more to it than that. People who go at it to do good uh, end up nowhere. I mean, they're, 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 and again, it might be a good idea if it were possible to use literature to do good, but it doesn't do good. It simply either delights us or we ignore it. Um, the core, uh, sub B, there are political reasons whereby we will accept that, that which does not delight us. For example, that it, makes, that it makes us feel secure because we say, yes, I am a part of that group. I am a part of the group which likes this kind of books. I am a part of the group which likes books on this topic. But it doesn't delight us and we forget about it the next day and we go on our merry way. Um, the only purpose of it is to delight us. The only people who can do it are those people who, who learn it. The only people who learn it are those people who are, A, given a gift from God, Baruch Hashem, or B, work at it, or more, more usually, A and B. And who can tell who they're going to be? We don't know. Um, they're going at it in the dark, just like me and just like you. A bright light does not come down and say, guess what? You're elected. And so all of the trials which you're going to undergo for the rest of your life are to a good end. Don't worry about a thing, kid. Okay? <laughs> Were that the case, life would be a lot easier for a lot of us, wouldn't it? But we say... Uh, we, we make another logical um, error. We say, if it's true after the fact, it must be true before the fact. And we say, aha, if it's true after the fact that they're a famous writer, what sort of design, the divine sign of grace must they not have gotten up front? Or, if they hadn't gotten that up front, how can we deduce from what they did how we should act? You follow me? It's the boys from Brazil theory. But it's not true that because it's true after the fact, it's true before the fact. And finally, we have to be selective. Just as Ira Levin did. A trillion, willion things happened to, to young Dolph Hitler. Who can say what it was that influenced him? You know, and finally, Tolstoy would say it wasn't him anyway. It was the German people. May their name be erased. Um, who can say that it's going to be important that, uh, that Hemingway wrote Standing Up? Or that people suffered during the period of their youth? Well, show me somebody who didn't. Right? This is just another fiction foisted on us to delight us by a certain kind of writers who are called biographers. The questions which I receive, I look at them and I say, well, I'm curious too. I like the gossip too, but I don't, I don't, they, they don't really apply. Uh, so that's all that I know. If, if any of you have any other questions at, at, at this time, I'll be more than happy to, uh, to ignore them too. <laughs> Anyone at all? Yes, Miss. How much do you felt that the characters that you created in the Barry Glenn Laws have different audience reactions from the screen version versus the theater version? And where, in which end do you get more safety from the audience and why? Well, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I mean, there are a lot of variables. One is a play, one is a movie. People watch plays and movies differently. Also, there's another variable, which is the cast is different. If you take the same play and do it in two different cities with two different casts and two different directors, the reaction is going to be very, very different. So the cast that did the movie is very different than the cast that did it on stage. Um, in spite of that, I, I thought that the reaction to, to, to both of the events was fairly similar. As far as sympathy about the characters, though, I don't know because I wasn't paying attention. I just care if the people like the writing. The characters are going to have to fend for themselves. Anyone else? Yeah, sir. In the play, I remember what happened to me in the audience was that there was immediately started a series of emergencies that made me, the characters made me lose control, which was terrific. So a lot of times I could sit back and very philosophically be detached. I'm sort of like a detective. Uh huh. I try. What that's called, that's called a plot. Actually, I don't mean, I don't, please believe me, I don't mean to be disingenuous by, by, by explaining to you that's what that's called. People in Hollywood have no idea that that's why people watch movies from one moment to the next. They want to know what happens next. And the way you do that is by structuring a plot. 
And if you don't got a plot, people will watch it as, again, for, for pseudo-political reasons. I bet they'll say to themselves that these two people are going to pretend to have sex on that screen within the next seven minutes. I'll wait. Right? Or, gee, I bet that they're going to pretend to kill each other, which is what most, those two things being what most American movies have degenerated to. These two things are very easy to do. Even a studio executive can do them, which is, in effect, what they do for a living. They say, wouldn't it be a good idea if halfway through Act One they had sex? Well, okay. You know, wouldn't it be a good... We need another shootout here at the end of the... Well, okay. These things take our interest because they are that which occupies our consciousness, a fear of sex and a desire for violence, right? So we will watch a movie... <laughs> we will watch a movie if we are told that that movie will pander to our, including my, low desire for those low things. We'll watch it. That ain't a plot, though. You know? It's, uh, it's magnifique, but it's not Laguerre, as the frogs used to say. Anyone else? Uh, sir. Okay. I just let it roll out. See, people always... I get asked questions many times over the years that have this same fallacy. You must... What did you intend to do when you sat down to write? Did, did you... Aha! If all of these effects are contained in the writing, therefore, must the writer not have pre, uh, foreseen all of these effects, intended them to come in that order with that magnitude? Well, the answer is no. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a category of writers to whom this answer is not known. Those are known as bad writers. Because if the writer can figure it out beforehand, the audience can figure it out beforehand. Right? These are wonderful books to read on airplanes. Right? We have a certain amount of anxiety about whether the plane, God willing, is going to touch down on one thing. We'd like that anxiety to be removed for a certain period of time, to a certain extent, which doesn't interfere with us watching the movie. Therefore, we read, these, we read those books in those venues. But if the writer can foresee the effect and sets out to have an effect on the audience, the audience can, can foresee it too. And just like with the slice and dice films or the imitation porno films, we might play along because we like that effect, but we aren't really interested. We're just waiting for the payoff. I don't think I had it. I wrote a screenplay because they told me to write a screenplay. The, the, um, the film is a very, very different medium than the stage. It's the, for somebody who works in, in both, of the, both media, it's incumbent upon me to figure out what's, what is going on. The, the old joke is the, the neophyte radio writer sits down and one of his first lines of dialogue is, come in and sit down in that green chair. The task of a screenwriter is not to fall into that trap. A lot of screenwriting does, because it's written by studio executives, by people who don't understand that what the audience is watching is a plot. Uh, Ma'am. That's a good question. This woman asked me if I was interested in my characters as such, or... Are the characters simply in a... a, a, a yeah, to mouth off. Yeah, well, the answer to that, and it's going to sound um, as with the rest of this little talk on my part, uh, obfuscatory, is that there is no such thing as a character. Character doesn't exist. If you take a piece of um, writing, nobody believes this, but it's, it's true. If you take a piece of writing, take a script, what you're going to see is 12 to 20 lines on a page going on for 120 pages. If you take it up and turn it upside down, as long as it's firmly bound with those little brass rivets, you know, that screw in all the time, it's impossible to screw them out. As long as you do that, nothing's going to fall out. There isn't any character in there. It's a bunch of words that people said, period. That's what Aristotle told us, and it's just as true today. There is no such thing as character. It's just little words that the writer made up. 
to me, that your question is, there's a certain mystery involved in writing uh, drama, I believe. I think drama is one of the few things, the few kinds of writing for which one needs a certain amount of talent. I could be wrong, but I, th- I think it's true. It's like sketching. Somebody takes up a pencil and, and sketches and, and, and can sketch and boom, 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 there's five lines, and all of a sudden five lines on a paper look like people sitting in an auditorium. You say, oh my God, how did he do that? How did she do that? It's incredible. I know it's just five lines on a paper, but somehow it captures, I say, they're just like that. Right? Well, this, this drawing doesn't have any private life. It's black lines on a paper. It doesn't go out and, you know, and get drunk and get laid after work. That's it. That's, it just sits there. The same is true with, the, with, with your question about the character. There's nothing there. It's just, it's just lines, which if they're sketched correctly and sketched minimally enough, will give to the audience the illusion that those are, quote, real people, especially when they're said by real people, which are actors. So a large part of the technique, and perhaps some of the talent of playwriting, is, is to leave it all out, to realize what the actors are going to fill in so that one does not have to say, sit in that green chair. Well, you didn't help the audience out by telling the chair was green. You just reminded them that they're listening to the radio. The task of radio writing would be not to remind them so that they could enter more fully into the illusion which is created by a radio drama. So uh, I think character is an illusion. And if one looks at American politics for the last 20 years, ha, 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 ha. Yes. Oh, uh, Jeff, I'm sorry. Well, screenplay is all, as far as I'm concerned, just all plot. That's all it is, it's plot. Plot is nothing other than the structure of, of, the structure of incidents. Incidents are those things which happen which are essential to our understanding of the plot. If they didn't happen, we wouldn't understand the plot. If you put in one extra incident, we'd say, wait a second, I know that, get on with the plot. So, a good play is that too. But, um... It seemed to imply, or not imply, you say that yeah, the audience doesn't agree with me, though. So perhaps that's a lesson that I've learned since the, that, that appeared in the New York Times in this, in this very day. Someone over here had a question. Sir? Do you find that opening the body of work would approach the different plays that you've written more or less at the same point? Or does each one start at a... As a you mentioned how, how, how to plot. Do you start plot? Do you find that what you work with plot first as opposed to character? Sometimes I do it one, sometimes I do the, do the other. Um, it just it doesn't interest me. I mean, what interests me is to write, is, is to write, is to write plays and to do those, do those things which will help me write better. Those things amount to having some paper and having a pen and setting aside some time. Now, those are all that I know of. If I knew of any more, I'd do them too. Uh, sir? Oh, yeah, go ahead. We'll ask the other. Yeah. Oh, sure, I love directing movies. Movies, movies. Directing is a lot of fun. It takes a lot of time, though. To direct the movie takes about a year. So that's, that's a long period of long period of time. Well, if you figure three months of pre-production and three months of filming and three or four months of uh, post-production uh, and then mucking about and turning down requests for interviews, that's about a year, I think. <laughs> Sir? <laughs> when I saw the movie Hoffa at a screen, I didn't look at the press You didn't look at the what? The press kit. Yeah. As a movie man, this sounds like a play by now. Yeah. Uh huh. And then the same effect finally came on, they said, it's being played by Yeah. And then I said to myself, how does it feel? But maybe, man, to think, if it is, that he's going to fill down the history as having attributed nothing much more. And the greatest number of the <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a very good question. 
You know, there, there are different, that's a very good question. There are different kinds of obscenities. One is, one is the obscenity which treats of, either direct, which treats of or uses language which is generally deemed appropriate to those endeavors which a society does not want to examine at a given time. I think we could all agree this is one form of obscenity. But could we not? Call somebody a communist in the 50s was, was considered an obscenity. Call somebody a homosexual in the, in the 50s or 60s was considered in polite society to be an obscenity. To call somebody a Jew in, in the 30s in much of the world and much of the world today was considered an obscenity. To call somebody a cocksucker or a motherfucker in this society which is so terrified of sex is considered an obscenity. There's another kind of obscenity which is to uh, speak of the honest work of men and women in a slighting way in order to gain the attention of a crowd or of a, of a magazine reading audience. I think that's kind of an obscenity. Anyone else? Miss? Um, I'm really interested in what delights you. I mean, knowing what delights you probably is difficult what delights me, but I've been hearing that a lot from people in the past few days. When you talked about writing something about delight, could you just talk more about delight and move your delight? Yeah, well, great acting delights me. Uh, great writing delights me. Great music delights me. The same thing that delights anybody. Um, just like the rest of you, I probably have a, have a, have a private life and that may or may not delight me. But um, I, I like things, which, I like, I like things which, are, which are done well, you know, just like anybody else. Uh, yes? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's another way of asking the same question that this woman asked previously about character, and she's now asking it about theme. Which, well, plot, plot and theme are very, are very different from each other, and I think you're even... I'm not starting with a theme. I'm just starting with... I'm usually just starting with writing. The people, somebody said that a good poem is not finished, it's just abandoned, which I think any of us who have ever attempted to write a good poem have found. And I think that the same is true of a play that to write a, a play with a stringent plot is just, it's, in, it's wonderfully and incredibly demanding. That's what I'm trying to do these days when I write a play, is to stick to the plot. Because if I stick to the plot, the rest of it is going to take care of itself. The theme is something that I don't, that, that's, a, that's a post facto consideration of others. Uh, I assume it's going to, I assume it's going uh, to, I assume, look, it's like somebody's a dress designer, and they design a dress. And they design the most beautiful dress that they can design. Well, that dress is probably going to be appropriate to wear somewhere, right? It might be a ball gown. It might be a, a lounging outfit. It might be a negligee. It might be a, 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 a communion dress. Some people probably start out with saying, let me design a ball gown, a negligee, a communion dress. That's okay, too. That's, that's not the way that I work. I'm trying to follow a, follow a plot. It's a play is a syllogism, just like a, like a um, mathematical equation. If this, then that. As Aristotle told us in the perfect play, as he said, the, the perfect tragedy, the then that is going to be seen as both inevitable and surprising, and thus inspiring us both fear and pity. Now, you've got to get real lucky and work real hard and... Uh, and then get real lucky to make such a thing which is going to do, do both of those things, but su surprise us through its through its um, su surprise us through its through the oddness of the solution, and yet comfort us with its inevitability. We say, "Oh my gosh! Now I see! Aha! I remember that was back there in the beginning." Right? The perfect example of this, Freud said, is music. He said polymorphous perversity. It surprises us and delights us with no verbal content, whatever. But yet, when we hear a Chopin etude, we say, oh my gosh, now I see. Right? It's the same thing that I think that the theater is trying to do. 
Some people get confused because it's made up of verbal content. You follow? And they think that we can put all of this garbage into the computer. Okay, we'll put in some AIDS, we'll put in some homosexuality, we'll put in some heterosexuality. We'll put in Crown Heights, we'll put in blah, 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 because these are the things which, which, which um, fill our waking hours. Therefore, they must create, babbidi babbidi boo, a beautiful work of theater. Well, it don't work that way. It's the plot which finally, uh, I feel, uh, surprises and delights us. Yeah, sir. Are you saying that when uh, you structure the plot of a play, there is no conscious thought on your part of what kind of idea you're going to be communicating with the play is on? That's right. Yeah. Nope, just do the best I can. You know, there's another fallacy, since we're talking about fallacies today, which is that if we take a work and say it's by a great writer and bind it in Morocco and put it up on the shelf, that it somehow contains some sort of perfection. It's I have this fallacy, you do too. If we take that same work in manuscript and scrawled over, we're going to see that the, that the work has been purified by the passage of time. We aren't judging it by the same standard. We impute a certain kind of perfection to that work, which enables us to relax. That work is probably... I don't mean to say that this is a great work, Oleana. I'm saying that if you took uh, Othello and saw it in manuscript with the scratches on it, you'd say, wait a second, I don't get it. As some idiot once said, he said, Othello is a terrible play, because who acts like that? Well, that's somebody who's never been in love, right? But a lot of people may have said that when they saw the manuscript. They said, wait a second, I don't get it. You mean to tell me that this guy who we're told is X, Y, and Z comes home from the wars and this girl, because he sees this handkerchief, babbidi, 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 boo? You know, it's tough. The audience got a lot less argumentative downtown with my play of Oleana after the reviews came out, which were generally uh, favorable, and the audience relaxed. Well, I'm the same way, too. You know, I go to an art, I know something about the theater. It's, even so, it's hard for me to go to a, a, a play in a drafty theater by somebody I never heard of and judge it the same way I would a play in a plush theater by somebody I, I have heard of. But we all have our blind spots. I go to an art gallery, I want to look at the name of the picture. I don't know anything about painting, right? So I want to see the name of the picture and know, I like to know what people said about it and it's very useful to me to know that that's a well thought of, that's a well thought of picture. Now all of a sudden, you know, I can look at Cezanne's uh, uh, Mont Saint-Victoire that by Cezanne? I think so, yeah. And I, can say, and I can say, aha, I get it. This isn't the cartoon with just a couple of lines on it. This is a great painting, and I can appreciate it because it, it, it calmed me. Anyone else? Yeah, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Tell you what? Speed the Plow, as the gentleman points out, used to be the name of a 200-year-old play by uh, Thomas Morton of, of the Salt Dynasty, and it contained the character Mrs. Grundy and all of that stuff. And uh, I liked. I spent a lot of time in England, and um, Speed the Plow was a motto written on English barns for a couple of years and put on English cups and put on. Uh, and there was a there was a poem that went with it that said, "Let the wealthy and." Uh, great role and comfort and state. I, I envy them not. Uh, I declare it. I make my own ham, my own something about... I, I weave my own wool and I wear it. The lark is my morning alarmer, so jolly boys, now it's God speed the plow. Good health and uh, success for the farmer. So speed the plow was a poem about farmers. Speed the plow means let's help May God speed, may God help, 
the farmer. And so Speed the Plow is to me a play about work. And uh, so I chose that title because it was uh, provocative. Oleana was the title, as this gentleman points out, of a play by the Kingston Trio, uh, a a song by the Kingston Trio. And um, it was a a song about a utopia called Oleana, which was in western Pennsylvania, and it was a planned utopian community which was planned and financed by a uh, Pennsylvania, very famous Pennsylvania singer of the late, I guess of the post-Civil War period, called Ole Bull, who was a Norwegian singer. And he made a lot of money, and he invested it in land and wanted to make a beautiful community for Norwegians to come and live in, uh, which would give him a large profit. And his wife's name was Anna, and his name was Ole, and they called it Oleana. And the community went bust, and everybody lost their money. And the wags in Philadelphia made up this song about what a wonderful place Oleana was, uh, thus holding Ole Bull up to scorn. So as the, this play, Oleana, is a play about a failed utopia, in this case, the failed utopia of academia. Uh, that's what I called it. Sir. Who made the final decision to cast Pacino? I think that the decision was made by the producer. It was never in the cards for Joe to... Uh, as I understand it, and as Joe understood it, because we, we talked a lot about that, for him to play the part, it was going to be a big-budget motion picture, and uh, I'm sorry? Yeah. Sir? When I use something what? You use something that has nothing to do with the plot. When I use something, I have nothing to do with the plot because I like the way it sounds. Well, that's a good question. Uh, I started off in the theater as an actor and as a director, and I had my own theater company, and uh, that's how I used to, uh, to eat. Billy Macy was in a theater company and Steve Schachter, and the people didn't come to the theater. We didn't eat. And I wrote the place because we couldn't afford um, royalties. We were also working at straight jobs during the day. But... Um, I didn't come to the theater as a um, as an esthete or as a child of the English department or as a philosopher. I came in, in effect, as a gag writer. And if I was going to write the, the play, which was supporting me and the rest of the company, and it wasn't funny and it was supposed to be a comedy, we didn't make any money. That's a very good school in which to learn to cut. You follow me? There wasn't any consideration past the, the fact that the, that the play had better pleas. That if the play was going to be a comedy, it better be funny. And if a play was going to be funny, you better beat the audience to the punchline. And if you're going to beat the audience to the punchline, you better cut out the B material and stick with the A material. And if the play was going to be a drama, it better be dramatic. Anything which was not dramatic in a drama was going to cause the audience to snore and they wouldn't tell their friends to come see the play. So this is the school in which I, I studied playwriting. To this day, everybody has the, imp- the, the, um, the uh, urge to put in one more, to put in how smart they are, but it just kills the play. You know, there's a wonderful book, which occurs to me might be about playwriting, called The Art of Cross-Examination, by a fellow called Francis Wellman, who's a great... Uh, lawyer, I think he died in the 30s, and it may still be being used in law school. And he says, don't ask a question, don't ask an extra question. When you're done, sit down. And the example that he uses is, a fellow is, on, is defending his client against the charge of biting off another fellow's ear. And the defense lawyer gets a, a witness on the stand, and he says, um, you say that you saw my client bite off this fellow's ear. Did you actually see him literally bite off the ear? And the witness says, no, I didn't. So that's, that should be the end of the interrogation. But the defense lawyer says, well, then how do you know he bit off the ear? And the witness says, because I saw him spit it out. <laughs> so this is a guy who should, he should have he shut up and sat down. <laughs> Which is what I, what I think is one of the great, is what, what to me uh, is, is the main cut between somebody who wants to be a professional writer and somebody who doesn't. Somebody who knows how to cut. If you don't know how to cut, 
You know, if you're the product of some, of some school where you didn't learn that, you're not serious. Because the theater has to, be, has, to take place, has to take place with the audience. And if you don't know how to cut, or you're unwilling to cut viciously, just on the off chance that they might beat you to the punchline, you haven't been watching the audience. And if you haven't been watching the audience watching your plays, you're not a playwright. That, that's what I think. Sir. Uh, what uh, stage directors have influenced you um, most, or what stage directors do you think are the best working today, and what led you to direct your current production early on? I directed the current production because I liked the cast and I was looking forward to working with them. Were you afraid that the intent might be disturbing? No. Okay. See, everybody. Well, I, I hadn't directed on stage in a number of years, and I had to fight in myself the same question, the, the same thing that many other people may, may fight as a member of the audience, and that's the idea that there's a perfect way to do it. I say, oh my God, you know, I'm not a director, I'm a writer, and I haven't done this in years, oh my God, it's going to be terrible. I say, well, wait a second, you have the right to direct it. In some ways, your, your production is probably not going to be as, quote, abstractly good as other people's production. So what? Now, in some ways, your production may not be as concretely good as other people's production. You may be missing a point. You may not adequately stress this, or you may uh, overlook that. And finally have to say, well, I'm not God. You know, I'm going to do the best job I can. Someone else would do it differently. I've elected to direct it myself, and uh, it's got my name on it. People are going to know who did it, and they can blame or praise me accordingly. Uh, there are many uh, uh, directors whose, whose work I, I admire. I, I don't think this is... I may be wrong, but this may not be the place for me to to get into it, lest by pro process of exclusion you uh, determine or elect that there are others whose work I don't admire. Uh, yes? Well, in more abstractly, what is it about certain directors that you, that you like to do your work? What is it about them that you feel brings your work to life? Well, that's a good question. And what is it that you That's a good question. Um, my daughter always says I say that's a good question when I don't know the answer. There are... <laughs> The idea foisted upon us by um, the national press, which is to say the New York press, is that there is a perfect way which, which is to say that there's a perfect way which things are in the theater and things which do not fall within the purview, within the, I'm sorry, do not fall within the strictures of that perfect way are unacceptable and that there is any number of peremptory challenges which one may use. It's through this, it's through that. It's, these things don't become, they don't become peremptory challenges until the until the critic tends to use them. You understand? But they have the weight of a peremptory challenge. Don't you realize that people don't, aren't interested in this? Or don't you realize that this is too X or too Y or too Z? There isn't any perfect way. There's the theaters, people struggling along in an imperfect world to do something with a little bit of excitement to it that might delight us. That's all that there is. Now, my particular prejudice and my particular skill, whatever that may be, I think has something to do with doing things minimally. It's my prejudice that if you can take two people and sit them in two chairs or no chairs on stage and we're going to listen to them raptly or with polite interest for somewhere around an hour and a half, that probably you're doing something correct. My particular prejudice is that when I start giving myself extra added helps, funny sets or moving this or lights or lasers, blah, 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 that I'm, I'm, I'm enough of a whore that I'm going to start relying on them because it's a lot easier, in my mind, to, to ring in extra things. So I want things done on a bare stage as simply as, and straightforwardly as possible. So I elaborate my own particular prejudice, as do we all, into a universal law, and I say, well, perhaps that's the best way that all people should do things. So those are the kind of productions that I like. There are also wonderfully, there are also wonderfully scenic productions, that, 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 I, that, I, that I admire greatly, that I, for many reasons, not the least of which is I have no clue how to do them. I, I wouldn't want to touch it because I, I would muck it up. That's what I think. Sir? What are you currently writing? I'm currently writing a couple of plays and a couple of movies, and um, uh, uh, a poem. Oh, yeah. Sure. I mean, after they're done the first time, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Do you have a, do you have a 
Well, I like to all the time. I just I don't want to do it. I think that that way lies madness. I, I give anything. Yeah, sir. I think your play I don't know. Well, I wrote plays for a long time um, that were rather episodic. This thing happens here, and then this guy's going. This thing's going to happen here, and then this thing's going to happen here. And that, then I started trying to write plays that had a plot with them because of the. Uh, because it was a little bit harder to do, and it intrigued me a little bit more. Edmund is this... It's a guy's descent of the hell, this middle-class guy who falls off the bandwagon and ends, up, uh, and ends up in prison. And so that was kind of a descent into the maelstrom play that I was writing because I was wandering about New York very unhappy. Um, that's all that I know. Uh, yes, yes, and then I'll answer your questions. I'm a great admirer of Yeah. 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 There is a, there's some very good advice. Who can think of it? <laughs> I got an idea. Anyone else? I got a good, a good idea for something that would answer your question immediately. Anyone? You can focus on the action. The action being what it is that the character, that the character or the protagonist wants. But what I was thinking of, anyone? An idea? Yeah. Yeah. My idea was to stage it, get two people together, however many people, and, and, and stage it. See, is, is each character speak? See, here's something that almost no one always astounds me. Almost no one understands about dialogue. Characters on stage, just like characters in what we laughingly refer to as real life do not speak to reveal themselves. They do not speak to conceal themselves. They speak to get something from the person to whom they're speaking. And that's the only reason they speak. So when this person suggests that you look at the action of the character, that's another way of saying what I just said. What is it that the character wants? Is the character saying those things in your election which are going to give her or give him what they want? If not, let him say something else, and if so, let him shut up. But there is no such thing. Aha. <laughs> that concludes our lecture for today. Thank you for your attention. <laughs> Sir. Uh, oh, they're going to ask you. Yeah. Concerning your directing your own plays, isn't there a great temptation with actors to give them line readings when they feel they don't get put in there? No. And <laughs> no. You know why? Because, oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Please, uh, please uh, finish your question, then I'll answer it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that actors hate that. Yeah. And how, how do you resist doing it? Because I have, I have um, a great deal of pride. And part of my pride as a writer is that you don't have to tell the actor how to say the line. That's, that's, part, of, that's, that's part of my pride. If I, that's why I don't write stage directions in a play. I think if you, don't need, you don't need them. Like Sam Irwin said, you know, if something's a, something's a horse, you don't have to hang a sign around the neck saying it's a horse. And if it's not a, if it's not a horse, uh, the sign's not going to help you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's a good question. There's a lot of them. That's a, that's a very good question. 
Because my daughter would say, I don't know how to answer that. I think that there's a lot going, there's, there's a lot, if you look at the network news, that to me is a lot of obscenity. Because in the, in the, in the name of, quote, telling us what went on, it's showing us a lot that should be private. Whether it's none of our damned business, whether it increases the misery in the world. I think that's obscene. Uh, I don't know that there is such a thing as snuff films. People have been saying there were for a long time. I think that's what most action films are attempting to become. I think eventually they will. Uh, I think that anyone who wanted to film people performing real obscene or violent acts and call it art is rather mistaken uh, in their understanding that it is art. Uh, should it be disallowed, I believe that it's illegal. I believe that it, I, believe, I know it's true in the case of child pornography, and I assume it's true in the case of snuff films, that it's illegal to, to, to distribute uh, films of illegal, of illegal acts for gain, at least in the case of child pornography. Um, does that address your question? Stanislavski said that the purpose of art is the purpose of the theater is to bring to the stage the life of the human soul. Now, if there were, if anyone ever needed an excuse, which I guess those of you who are so inclined do not need, to make fun of me, you can use the fact that I just said that. But uh, I believe it to be true. I believe the purpose of theatrical art is to bring to the stage, in all of its variety and terror and humor and delight, the life of the human soul. In these times of cultural decay, there, there are other things which come under the aegis of art which, or theatrical art which don't do that, which distract us, which disturb us, but whose purpose is not to bring to, to the stage the life of the human soul. Many of, many of these, the purpose is to bring to the stage some idea of the creator of this work. You follow? Do you see the difference? That's why I said I don't start out with a theme. I want to start out and follow some human uh, interdigitation, which might lead me into a play. Because once you start saying, aha, I know what's right, I know what the people need, art which can better them, or I know what's art, things which express my feelings, what you end up with is the Tower of Babel. Right? People who are saying, there is no God, I, 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 I'll tell you what, I'm God. And as soon as I get this tower high enough, well, you're going to see that it's true. The purpose of theatrical art, however, as Stanislavski said, I believe, is to bring as imperfectly as we can, the best we can is going to be imperfect, to the, to the audience, the life of the human soul. Someone else have a... Yeah. Like a little further about uh, something that arose earlier that you handled very uh, well, very concisely. The fact that there are men and women of work out there um, uh, who presumably love their subject, which is the art of the theater, but who, in writing about it, uh, demonstrated that often their chief interest is to, to call attention to the finesse with which they can insult the participants. Even so much so, even so obsessed with that, that they come to a situation such as this. In the world. To practice um, that kind of insult. I, I, Dr. Miller was talking about this once, and I said, How does this affect when you sit down to write? And, and he said, At that time, of course, he got past that, but he said, he said Because of that exact situation, there's no question now that I write solely from my desk. Maybe 30 or 40 years hence, the situation will change and so forth. And obviously, he got past that. But I want to ask you, are there not times when you have been at least temporarily laid low by that kind of uh, writing about your work, that kind of delight on the part of the writer in the attack, with clearly no love for what's behind it? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, uh, I, there's several answers to it. Nobody likes to be ridiculed. Nobody likes to be held up to scorn. To be held up to scorn in front of millions of people is uh, is upsetting. I, I think that anyone who says that it's that it's not is um, is a lot luckier than I am. I think that over the years, if you, if one's going to lead one's life to a certain extent in the open, 
I write a play, I write a book, I write a movie, I put my name on it. Part, I'm very well rewarded for it in many, many ways. Part of, the, part of the, the reverse of that is that people get to say whatever they want. They paid for their ticket or they paid for the right, one, one way or another, to be a, a critic. They get to say whatever they want. And then I'm going to have to learn how to live with that. And that's, 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 just, that's just life. Another answer is that a, that a person also has to be known by his or her enemies. Um, and the third answer, which I say to myself many times, is, okay, you know what? I wrote this and put my name on it. And you wrote that and you put your name on it. And, and I'll, I'm happy with that bargain. Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's a very good question. I started out when I started my first or second theater company, me and Billy Macy and Steve Schachter and a fourth woman called Patricia Cox, and we didn't have the 20 bucks uh, to um, get a seal from the state to allow us to begin the incorporation process. That wasn't that long ago. It was 16, 17, 18 years ago. We had to go out and work for it, and we had to go out and borrow it. I don't want to fall into the um, solacism of elaborating my, my few difficulties into a, uh, a prescription. But I would point out to you what uh, the early Zionists found out when they wanted to, uh, in, the, in the 1890s, what Herzl found out when he wanted to raise funds for a Jewish homeland. You know, he went to uh, Baron de Hirsch and he went to Rothschild and all of those guys. And uh, what, did he, what, what did they tell him? Remember? They said, thanks, you know, call us back in 80 years. And so he went out and collected dimes and pennies from, from, from the poorest of the poor in Eastern Europe to start buying land in, in what was then Palestine. I think that one has to look at one's constituency. That by the, what I found out, both as someone who's looking for grants and never got them until I didn't need them, and also as someone who was approached by various organizations over the years to, to sit on boards which would give out grants, is that the consensus process used to dole out grants might work in the abstract, but it ain't going to work for you or me or for somebody who really needs it for a purpose which probably, at the outset, cannot be handily reduced to five sentences which are going to please the granted community. You follow, you follow me? So that what you have to do, I would think, is see who your constituency is, the actual community, because theater takes place in the community, for whom you are writing and of which you are a part, and go to those people and say, okay, well, come on, we want to put on this play, mom, dad, uncle, Max, bake around the corner, how about 250, how about five bucks? And uh, as I said, I don't, want to, I don't want to elaborate my few historical difficulties in the description, but my experience was, and so I guess my advice is, it's going to be a better play that way. I think we'll take three more questions. Sir. How do you balance starting the conflict as soon as possible in the play against having to introduce the characters somewhat with a conflict to make sense? Well, that's a good question. How do you introduce the characters in a play for the conflict to make sense? As quickly as possible. As quickly as possible. Wow. Okay, well, I, if you're interested in it, based not on your understanding of right or wrong, but on your memory of what I've said to you tonight, it's based solely on that. Okay? As a, a, we'll hypothesize that, there, that there's some worth in it. Well, we won't even hypothesize there's any worth in what I've said tonight. We'll say, this is a test. All you have to do is spew back to me what I've said tonight. Okay? What, what, would, what would your answer be on the test? Start the conflict on the first line and explain it later. Okay, yes, I think I, that's what I would do. I would start the conflict immediately. At A, and B, I wouldn't explain it later. Because it goes back to the horse theory. If the people are actually striving to get what they want, the, the audience is going to follow it. 
isn't it? I mean, obviously one can't be capricious and arbitrary. You have to know that the conflict is starting on the first line and where it's going, and that each person is speaking to get what he or she wants. If they're doing so, the audience will give you the gift of their attention, and as the play progresses, if the conflict becomes clearer, they will give you their thanks. That's good playwriting. Anyone else? You're very welcome. Sir? Yeah, how do you feel your writing style changes when you're writing with somebody else? I mean, how do you feel? Well, the only time I ever wrote with somebody else, I wrote with Shel Silverstein. We wrote a movie together. And the writing style changes as we smoked a whole lot of cigars. <laughs> um, so, many, so, many, so much so that the woman who had the office next to us wet towels and put them down in the, in the door <laughs> and, and brought an industrial strength fan and so that any s- s- spare smoke that came under the door would be uh, blown back into our face. Other than that, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wish I could tell you differently, but that's, that's true. Uh huh. A life in the theater. Well, actually, well, I, I'm, I'm planning at this juncture to do a, 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 a movie of it. With, uh, Jack Lemon says he wants to do a movie of it, so I think we may do a movie of it. And well, one last question from you, sir. Oh, what about the chairs? Now you're going to tell me he wrote a chair, play with chairs, I wrote a play with chairs? <laughs> well, why stop there? <laughs> I don't know. I remember seeing the lesson a long time. A long time. It's very interesting. I, I read all that Ionesco stuff. All, all of us had to read all of that stuff, you know, in all those modern library things in the 50s and so forth. And then uh, I, I speak a rudimentary but serviceable French, and I went, went to Paris one time where they also speak that same kind of French, and I saw um, a rhinoceros, and I was amazed to find that the play was hysterically funny, that it wasn't absurd. It was just a, a, a wacky... Uh, uh, hysterically funny farce. So I, I may have been influenced by Ionesco in, in English translation as a youth, but uh, I didn't like it. I'd, I'd like to thank you all for, for, uh, for your attention. Um, as I said to this person over there, I've always believed, and I still believe, that the theater takes place in a, in a community. As dull and as oft-repeated a statement as that is, I think that it is coincidentally true And I think that after everything is said and done, the reason the New York theater fell into the doldrum in the last 20 years was for... the economic. Excuse me? Well, that's what I think. And I think that that they say that the the wildlife is disappearing in certain states. The reason the wildlife disappears is the habitat disappears. That's why wildlife disappears. And I think that the same thing happened here, that because the habitat disappeared the theater became vastly constricted. And the habitat was not the writer, but the habitat was the audience. If you have an enlightened middle class of X millions of people, those people are going to go to the theater, they're going to cross-pollinate, and they're going to see to it that the theater sustains itself because it's their theater. If the middle class flees the city, as how could it not, you know, as the, as the department buildings go and the high-rises go up and the out-of-towners come in and real estate gets sucked, it's, it's just, it's unfortunate, but I think natural, that the theater is going to become more constricted. So it's wonderful to me, it's very nice, that the, that the theater community, on a smaller scale, but on a very real scale, as uh, evidence in you here today and me here today, still exists. And thank you very much for your attention. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. 
This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.